Amen. If you have your Bible, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to finish that chapter um, this morning and, and move forward into chapter 4. Um, and um, all along the way, uh, boy, let me just tell you that, you know, kind of the latter part of 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3, uh, man, you know, it's been some meaty stuff, some confusing stuff, some stuff to think about, and sometimes it sounds very foreign to our ears. Hey, here's the thing. The more we read the Bible, the less foreign it will sound. I'll just talk to the wall back here because it's, <laughs> listen, uh, I get it. First Timothy 2, not an easy passage. First Timothy 3, it's a lot to digest. The more we read the Bible, the, the less foreign it will sound to us. I promise you that is the case. And so, uh, you know, our thinking needs to be shaped by not cultural pressure, not cultural norms, uh, not the stuff people uh, post on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media, uh, but instead it needs to be shaped by the Bible. And that stuff needs to begin to sound foreign to us. Like that's a win for us. Not the stuff in the Bible, all right? So let, let's, let's keep working, uh, keep working on this. Um, does anybody, uh, any husbands in here ever had their wives uh, leave the house for a day or two or however many and then, um, and then come back? Anybody? I mean, they left and then came back. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, if wives, you may not know this, uh, and it, the matrix of decision-making kind of depends on how many kids are also involved in their ages, but there is a process that every man goes through when his wife leaves and then makes her way back. And the decision-making process goes something like this. The, the, there's multiple data inputs. One input is just how messy the house is. Secondly, how many people are at the house to help clean it? Thirdly, how far away is she? Men, am I, am I right about this? Am I right about this? There's this whole matrix that you plug all these inputs into and out spits this thing. Because my wife, um, on occasion, uh, uh, you know, has to take a link. In a couple of weeks, she's going to take one of our kids up to Dallas to see a doctor. going to go up. And there will be this moment where um, I do a brief but very important calculation of she's this far away, the house is in this state, and I've got these people here to help me. And so uh, all of a sudden then you go into serious drill sergeant mode where you're like, pick that up, go that, do, 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 move this, throw that in the backyard. I mean, all that kind of stuff. And then she comes home because she has this, and I will say this, this very logical um, ex, uh, I mean, expectation that the house that she left is the house that she should come home to. Now, ladies, this is not a bad thing. This is not. I'm just saying, behind the scenes, all of this stuff happens. Why? Because if the house is in order when she comes home, then the health of the family is also a good thing. It was a positive experience. Now, if the house is in less than order, the, the, the health is also affected. Uh, and then the family, if, if the house is in order and then the health of the family is good, we can go on and do what families do. If the house is in disorder, there will be a dis-ease in the health of the family. And then, you know, we have some other struggles. This is what we've been talking about in 1 Timothy uh, pretty much the whole time. Paul is trying to say to Timothy, the church in Ephesus set that church in order. In order to promote health in that church. In order to propel the gospel outward. 
Just as we as a family are supposed to be doing some things, the church as a family is supposed to propel the gospel outward because there's lost people all around us, all around us. And so put the house in order, put the church in order, Timothy, and that will promote church health and that will propel the gospel out. We've been doing this over and over and over again for weeks now. This is what we're picking up again. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, if I could turn to the right page, that would probably be helpful. I won't read from a different book. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how um, one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul's saying just quickly, Paul's saying, hey, listen, you, you, I'm, I'm, I want to come see you. I want to come check on things. I want to see the progress. I want to see how things are moving along. But if I get delayed... Go ahead and put the house in order. Why? Because if the house is in order, uh, the church can be healthy. It promotes health in the church. And if the church is healthy, it will propel the gospel outward, which is always what he's aiming for. Um, he, he, and he describes the church in three different ways. And that's particularly what I want to focus on on the first part here is that we are a kind, we are a kind of people. When the Bible describes the church and talks about the household of God, and he's going to go on to talk about the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, he's not describing a building. Let's be clear about that. The church is not a building. When it talks about the house of God, I'll explain that in just a second. We're not talking about this right here. This could burn down tomorrow and there's still Heritage Park Baptist Church. I, by the way, I don't want it to burn down, just for the clarity, but if it did, there would still be a church. Um, it, it's not the organization. Five, the 501c3 could go away tomorrow and there would still be a church. Because the church is people, right? It's this network of relationships. And so listen to how Paul describes it. First he starts, um, he, he describes it as the household of God. The word he uses there is sometimes translated family, the family of God. That's the first way. When we talk about we are a kind of people, what kind of people are we? We are kind of people who are a family. We are a family of God. Um, what, what does that say? What, it means all sorts of things. One, it means that God is our father. We just sang about it, right? A good, good father. It's who he is. And we are deeply um, and, and lavishly loved by this good, good father. And, and here's the thing. Some people hear that and they say, man, me and my dad, we weren't like that. You can't project your dad onto God and think that's who he is. We've talked about this umpteen times in here. I'm sure of it. But let me be clear just one more time. God is not your dad and you just push the air and you blow him up into God's size. He's not your dad blown up. He's not your dad on steroids. He is the perfection of who your dad is, not the magnification of it. So your dad may have been great, God is still perfect. Your dad may have been terrible, God is still perfect. When he reveals himself as father, that's what he's saying. All of the deepest longings of your heart are going to be met in him. 189 times in the Gospels, 124 times in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus reveals God to us as father. That's a huge thing, huge thing. So he is our father. And then um, that then just following this along here as a family, that makes Christ our brother. We sing this actually in one of the hymns, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And part of the line is, thou our father, Christ our brother, all who live and love our time. And so Jesus is our, now some people are like, oh, well, brother, don't push that too far, but listen to this. He is our older, much bigger brother in that sense, in this family, right? And every one of us wants an older, bigger brother to take care of us. This changed, when I, you know, when this kind of thinking hit me, this changed the way I read the prodigal son story, right? You've got one son who runs off into a, far, a foreign land. You've got another brother, an older brother, who stays at home griping about it. 
As Jesus is telling the story, uh, what we want, what everybody longs for, is an older brother to come and rescue the younger brother, to pull him out of this dire straits that he's in. That older brother, he's just staying at home yapping at his dad about what he couldn't do. But Jesus is our older brother, and what did he do? He stepped into our world, and what did he do? He came to rescue us. He came to rescue us. So Jesus is our brother, and and that means also then that because uh, we are family, God's our father, Christ is our brother, we belong together then. We belong together through thick and through thin, uh, through the good stuff, through the bad stuff, through all the fighting, through any fame that may come, we belong together. It does not mean that we can fake it. It does not mean that we need to fake it. It means that, hey, we're in this thing together. I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. I'm in this with you. You're in this with me. We cannot even achieve some of the things in the New Testament that it tells us to do without being in in this together. And I'll just give you an example. Love one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Confess your sins to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. And on and on. You know what the common theme in all those statements is? One another. We got to be in relationship with people. You got to be in this with them in order for this to happen. That that only happens in a, a family kind of setting. And so we need each other. And again, we don't have to be perfect. We can stumble. Uh, There are times when I may be strong and you may be struggling. And so what do I do? I add my strength to your struggle to make sure that we're both continuing towards Jesus. There may be times when you're strong and I'm struggling. And what do you do? You come up and you add your strength to my struggle to say, hey, I'm in this with you. Let's keep journeying together. We say this all the time around here. I just want to say it again because it's important. It's okay. Our, Our church family... This, is, this needs to be the experience of our lives. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Everybody in here has something. Everybody in here has stuff, whatever it may be. And we're saying everybody gets it. We get it. But it's okay not to be okay. But it's just not okay to stay that way because Jesus didn't get up from the dead so we could stay the same people that we always have been. We're going to move forward and be transformed by him. So he's our father, Christ is our brother, and we belong together. There are a couple of things that families always do together. You know, there's this meal, this family meal, right? They eat together and they enjoy the table together. Guess what we get to do this morning? We get to come to the table together. We get to celebrate our church family meal together. That, That is, we get to take the bread that we'll do here in just a minute and remember that the broken body of Jesus means wholeness for you and for me. And we drink the cup and we remember that the blood of Jesus is what has purchased our forgiveness. No longer do we have to worry about paying our own debt of sin. Jesus has paid that debt for us. This is our family meal. We'll come to the table and we'll remember that. And then the the other thing that they, they not only share a meal together, but families also celebrate important moments together. Uh, last week, we showed the video in the 830 service. Uh, last week, baptized two precious little kids, right? And they went down in the water, came back up. And what, what, what did you all do? You were like, oh, that's, that's really great. Man. No, what did you do? Yes! I mean, I, and appropriately so. Like when we have a baptism in here, it ought to be people bringing out their hankies and just waving them around like a rally towel. A couple of you ought to just pitch stuff up in the air like it's a party. You know why? Because it's a party. That's exactly right. That's exactly We have this monster celebration of this fact that Jesus has saved people from death and brought them into life. And what I love about both our family meal as well as Our family celebration, both the Lord's Supper and baptism is, they point us back to the most important thing. 
They both point us to the gospel, that Jesus has died for our sins, that he has come back from the dead, and he gives new life to anyone who puts their trust in him. I love that. We're a family of God. Second thing that he says here, uh, in verse, uh, at the end of verse 14, excuse me, 15. Um, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household or the family of God, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Paul's pulling some Old Testament um, uh, language forward here into the New Testament, this dwelling place, if you will, of the living God. Because what the scripture says is that God, by the Holy Spirit, dwells in each one of us uniquely uh, and individually. When we put our confidence in Jesus, we trust Jesus. He cleanses us of our sin, but he doesn't just sweep the house. He also moves in. I mean, like he takes up residence inside of you and me. And so the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But when we come together, when we all get together in a moment like this, um, it, it's not just that the Holy Spirit is individually in each one of us, which would be enough, but also that now the Holy Spirit comes and he kind of dwells in our midst. So it's individually in us and it's kind of synergistically in all of us here that we are greater than the sum of our parts here because God dwells in us. The Old Testament talks about it this way, that when we um, uh, praise God together in moments like this, in situations and settings like this, that that praise builds a throne for God and he comes and sits down right on it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God comes and sits on these. And it often that praise often expresses itself through singing. We have these joyous moments where we get to celebrate through song all that God's done. Uh, there's a movie that came out not too long ago. I think it was the, the title of the movie is actually this lady's name, Florence Foster Jenkins. Meryl Streep played for, Florence Foster Jenkins. Anyone? Go on once, go to like three of you. Great. Perfect. Uh, she was a... Um, she was like the Britney Spears of the early 20th century. Like, great entertainer, but couldn't sing a lick. I mean, like, that's kind of her thing. And <laughs> You know I'm right. So, um, so she had... She had this kind of, you know, following of people who would go and listen um, to her. And you listen, you go and listen online. I mean, she couldn't sing a lick. I mean, you listen, you're like, uh, I don't think that's how that song is supposed to go. Not even a little bit. Um, but, but I love the quote. There's a quote that came from her. And I thought about us as a church, not because of you're like her in any way. But this quote just so hit me. I just thought this was great. This is from her. She said, they might say I can't sing, but nobody can say I didn't sing. Now, some of you, the first part does apply, right? Like, you're like, eh. but nobody can say I didn't sing. Because this opportunity to give expressions of praise to God when we come together like this, this is the dwelling place of the living God. We get to experience the living God here in our midst. And one of the best ways to respond to that is praise. And so here's what, because some of us are tempted to sit back and they're like, oh, it's the music. I'm not sure I know this song. I'm not sure I like this song. I'm not sure whatever. I wish they'd sing this instead of that. I wish they'd turn it up or down or this or that. What? Listen, it, all of that's preference stuff. Just set all that aside. May it be said of us, they might say that they couldn't sing but they, nobody, nobody can say that we didn't. Because we are the dwelling place of the living God. Last description here, he uses this at the end of verse 15, uh, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is, we are the herald of the truth. A pillar is something, if you will, that exalts it, right? It lifts it up. 
We hold the truth up through our words and our actions. We hold the truth up. And the buttress is this, this architectural piece joined to the foundation that supports it. So we hold it up and we keep it secure. Um, keep it secure. Keep it secure like sounds like taking it and kind of putting it in a box and shoving it in a bank somewhere. That's not how you keep the truth secure. How do you keep the truth secure? By giving it away. And not just giving it away, but giving it away joyfully. If, our, if the truth of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus is that precious to us, then the best response for you and for me is to give that away and do so with joy. We, we promote it and we praise it. We exalt it, if you will, and we extol it. We, we, we give our praise, our joy along with it. We are the herald of the truth. And some of you come, you look at that, and you're like, family of God, dwelling place of living God, herald of the truth. Boy, that's not been my experience of church. And here's what I want to say. If you're disappointed or hurt by the church, we're imperfect, I promise you. If you're looking for a perfect church, Heritage Park is not it. But, let me just come backwards just one more time. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that either this church or some other church has, has disappointed you or wounded you in some way. But God is perfect in all of his ways. And he's a good, good father. And he never, never, ever, ever makes a mistake. We might make a mistake. Pastor guy might make a mistake. He never does. We might disappoint you. I might. He never will. He never will. So, all the more reason to go headlong into this thing called church because we are a kind of people, a family of God, the dwelling place of the living God, and this herald of the truth. This herald of the truth. Um, because we have kind of been given this repository, if you will, of truth in his word, and we get to be people who, who lift it up before people and, and validate it with our lives. Um, this second part here, Paul just immediately goes to these kinds of truths. And so we're kind of people, and we believe certain truths. I mean, that's the second part of this passage. We believe certain truths. And he, he puts this in, in this poetic form, probably uh, an early chorus or something of the church. He says, great indeed, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness this mystery is not, you know, mystery like you and I think. It's, it's what once was hidden is now being revealed. In other words, the Old Testament uh, was just shadows of it, and now it's fully known in Jesus. So that's what he's talking about. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in glory, taken up, uh, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. We believe these certain truths. Um, and uh, as Rich Mullen says, we don't make these truths, they make us. And this is, these things make us who we are. The reason we are a kind of people is because we have embraced these things. What kind of things are we talking about? Let's just run the list here. Um, he was uh, manifested in the flesh. Jesus, this is the truth, that Jesus came in the flesh. We call that the doctrine of incarnation. Um, that 100% God plus 100% man equals 100% Jesus. How the math of that all works out, I'm a little confused on it too, but that's, a, that's what we actually believe, that God the Son left heaven, came to earth, born of a virgin, and lived on this planet like you and me. We're just walk around, just, you know, here he is, right here. Incarnation. Uh, he became human. That, that if, if God wanted to speak our love language, he had to become one of us. And he did. 
Unbelievable thought that Jesus came in the flesh. Um, and then he, he just continues on, uh, vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels. In other words, that Jesus didn't just come as a man, but he also died. Um, he was allowed himself to be um, crucified by men, by his creation. Um, and in doing so, he paid the penalty for sin and purchased us for God. Uh, and then he didn't stay dead. Uh, when we baptize people as a symbol of this, we don't leave them down in the water, right? Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He came back out of the grave. And so he defeated our two greatest enemies. He defeated sin by paying for it, and he defeated death by conquering it. He came out of the grave. Thus, he was vindicated by the Spirit and looked upon or seen by angels. We have this doctrine of the crucifixion and what it meant for us, what it means for us, and the doctrine of the resurrection, this promise of eternal life with God forever. And these two things, the incarnation and the uh, crucif uh, crucifixion and resurrection, three things. Uh, these three doctrines form the heartbeat, if you will, of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is in charge of the world and that nobody else is. The, the good news that he has made a way for you and I to be made right with God. And so some people may hear this this morning. If you're here this morning, you're like, oh, this is, I've never heard it talked about that way before. Or I've never even heard this before. I thought Jesus was some religious figure who just kind of uh, fit on the stage somewhere in history and it was off stage. Exit stage left, Jesus, thanks for coming. Um, here's what I'm telling you, uh, man, the greatest thing that you could do, if this is new news to you, the greatest thing that you could do is put your trust in Jesus today. Turn away from your sin. Turn to him and say, I need you. Please forgive me. Come into my life and take control. And the Bible says today could be the very day uh, that you enter into a relationship with God and experience the salvation that Jesus purchased for you. If that's, if that's new news to you, man, we'd love to talk to you about this afterwards here in just a minute. We'd love to talk to you about this. If this is old news for you, you know the greatest thing that you could do? Uh, just, I didn't, just quickly, how many, how many shower people do we have in here versus how many bath people? Okay, shower people, shower people, okay, bath people. Doesn't matter which one. I just want you to picture yourself in a nice, warm, either shower or bath, depending upon which way you go, which way you're, you lean. Feel the water kind of cascading. You hear that moment where you're like, oh. It's so good you don't even talk, right? You just. No, mom's not talking right now. Dad's busy. You know, you're just so good, right? That's us with the gospel. If this is old news to you, some people want, oh, well, let's move past it. No, 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 no. You don't move past this. You sink deeper down into it. Because it's not only the foundation of everything of who we are. It's not only the foundation of what makes us this kind of people that we talked about. It's the very living breath of everything that we are as Christians. We don't move from the gospel. We move deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Just keep going here. Uh, he is proclaimed. He says, proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world that when we put our trust in Jesus, um, that we experience salvation. That's what I mentioned a while ago, that he, when we uh, share the gospel with people, like we're going to do Tuesday Good News Club, like I'm praying some of you do this week with your coworker or neighbor or whatever, you share the gospel with people, you um, want to see salvation come to them because people who are lost need to be found, and they're found by Jesus. People who are dead um, 
in their sins need to be made alive by Jesus. That's the doctrine of salvation. And then lastly, he says, and taken up into glory, Jesus went to the Father. We call that the doctrine of ascension. And depending upon how much you read into that, you can also read uh, the doctrine of his return into that. Why, why is this important? Why is it important? Because he didn't just disappear. And he didn't die again to be laid in a grave somewhere. He went to the Father, meaning he's still alive today. And what, what, what's he doing right now? According to Hebrews 7, he's right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Father, here's, here it is, Park Baptist Church, and they're meeting today, and they're going to celebrate communion, and they're going to get up and try to say something worthwhile from the Bible. Please speak to them by the Holy Spirit. Speak to them. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Oh, there's people out there, Father, some of who are struggling, and man, they got this, that, and the other on their plate. Would you support them? And there's people out there who need you to move in this way. God, would you, Father, would you please take care of that? I mean, he's up there praying for us right now. Unbelievable. Why is he doing that? Because he's alive and he's not dead. He's alive and he's not dead. Such an important doctrine. And some of you may think, okay, do, I mean, do, do all of these, do these doctrines, these things, do they even matter all that much? And the truth is, is that yes, they matter um, an, an amazing amount um, for two reasons. Number one, there will always be external challenges. To us as a church, there will always be external challenges. What are we talking about? Well, there'll always be these kind of pressures, these uh, forces, if you will, from the outside trying to conform us to them, to their agenda, to their place, to their way of thinking or whatever. Folks, listen, this is why picking up your Bible is so important. These truths will sound more and more and more peculiar as the world gets more and more and more crazy. But we will need these truths as the world loses its, continues, I should say, to lose its sanity. We will need these truths to keep us anchored in what is actually real. It may sound fuzzy. It may sound strange. It may sound foreign to your ears. Pick your Bible up and read it. The more you read it, the less foreign it will sound. It's not just a perceived reality. It's not just a, um, a, a dose, if you will, of, of, okay, well, you can have that for now, but really, you're going to come around to our way of thinking. That's not how this goes. In fact, this is not at all, none of these things at all are what the world says. And I'll just give you one simple example, the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, the God, the Son, left heaven, came to earth. So just get that in your mind, okay? Because every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world says what? I'm going to start here at the bottom and work my way through good works or through um, religious rites and rituals or something. I'm going to start my way here and I'm going to work my way up to where God is. Every other religion in the world says that. Christianity, because it's so foreign, says, oh, you're down there all right. But God starts up here and he comes down to us. He comes down to us. I mean, just that, nobody thinks that way in the world. We have to understand it. We have to believe that, believe that Jesus has done this. There are, these truths are important because of these external challenges. Quickly, they're also important because of internal heresies. If heresy is not a word that you've used before or heard before, a heresy is this kind of false teaching. And this is what he picks up in chapter 4. Look, if you will, in verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, the faith. Don't miss that, the faith. 
Um, he's talking about this kind of uh, uh, um, doctrinal, uh, this body, if you will, of teaching that the Bible encompasses, this body of teaching. He's talking about the faith. There will be people who leave that for something else. And what, what, is he, what do they leave for? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Instead of devoting themselves to Jesus, they are now devoted to this other stuff. And really, they don't know it, but it's deceitful spirits and demonic stuff. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Uh, the Spirit tells us that deceit is coming, and it is coming by this wrong devotion, and it's coming through the mouths of these people whose consciences have been seared, and it's um, not our devotion is not to what has always been, but what is new, what is exciting. And boy, when we get there, we find ourselves in trouble. Um, in this particular case, what was new uh, and what was different was, uh, you know, we had marriage and food because they, they were on these two things. They said, hey, listen, marriage is not really, um, you know, like you shouldn't enjoy that. Like that's not, don't get married, don't enjoy marriage, don't enjoy the benefits of marriage. You get what I'm saying? Like don't enjoy it. Oh, and here's food over here too. We know that you like to eat and like to enjoy and whatever. Don't do that. Don't do that because that's not, that's not good. Now, Here's the thing about both of those. This is what Paul is saying. Did God create marriage? Hello? Did God create? Okay, yes, he did. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, yes, God created marriage, and he's the one who defined it, and they're trying to redefine it. Uh, this sounds fairly familiar to me. Seems like redefining marriage. Okay, this, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. There's nothing. Happened 2,000 years ago, happening now. Um, so they're trying to redefine marriage and say, hey, listen, don't do this because it's not good and don't enjoy the uh, marriage and all the benefits of it. That's not good. It's just not spiritually healthy. And Paul's like, did God make it? Yes. Is it a gift? Yes. So enjoy it. What do you do with a gift? You receive it, you enjoy it, and you say thanks. That's, that, that's, how you, that's, how, that's a proper response to a gift. You receive it, you enjoy it, you say thanks. Same way with food. They were abstaining from uh, food or all sorts of food or some types of food, not exactly sure how that all went down. But Paul's saying, hey, listen, you're saying if you eat this, that, and the other, it's going to make you unhealthy. That may make you fat, but it's not going to make you um, unholy before God is what I meant to say. It's not going to make you unholy before God. It may make you unhealthy, but not unholy. Here's the thing. Listen, if this is given to you, it's a gift. Everything's created by God is good. So how do, you, how do you do this? You receive it, you enjoy it, and you say thanks. When you stop and say thanks before your meal, it's not some trite phrase. What is it? It's God, you gave us this. We ought to be burning in hell, but instead we get to sit here and eat. It's a pretty good day. Thank you, God, for blessing us with this. We want to enjoy this food in your presence. Amen. And you just eat, and it's a good thing. Um, again, there are all sorts of examples of this in the New Testament. People always adding things or trying to take away things, and that's just not the way that it goes. Uh, just, I'll, I'll save some of the examples here, but uh, do me a favor. Turn to the right a couple of pages here to 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, and we'll get ready to close. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 1. Why are these truths important? Because there will be external pressures, but also there are internal heresies that we have to fight. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The, 
the, with complete patience and teaching is important there. Verse 3, for the time is coming, this is what I wanted to get to, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, I'm going to listen to someone who tells me what I want to hear and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. They love, there will be people who love to fill their ears with what they love to hear, and they will do so to justify their own passions, their own lusts, their own desires. Tell me that what I want to do is actually okay. And the scripture, listen, it may sound foreign to us sometimes, it may sound a little crazy to us sometimes, but here's what it, it's always right. It's always right. And so when we root ourselves in the gospel, we listen to that old gospel. Forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. When we listen to that, it, that's, that's what changes us. One of, one of my favorite, I'll just make a confession. There's a lot of Christian music I cannot stand. If you need to come up and have a conversation with me afterwards, you just let me know. One of my favorite artists right now is a rapper named KB. Dude, you're 43 years old and you listen to Christian rap? Yes, because they're the prophets of today, man. I'm serious. That's a completely different sermon. In his song, in one of his songs, he says this. Give me that good old doctrine that good old gospel. Then towards the end he says, and then preach the gospel and stand back. Look for changed lives, not for hand claps. This is completely weird. This is the truth though. Every Sunday morning I listen to that song. It's my pre-preach jam, that's true. <laughs> Because of that line right there, preach the gospel and stand back. Look for changed lives, not for hand claps. When we root ourselves in that old school doctrine, in that good old gospel, we become the kind of people that God wants us to be. So we're going to come to the table and root ourselves in that old school doctrine and in that good old gospel. We're going to remember that Jesus has died and he has paid for our sins, and he has given his life in our place, and we'll celebrate that. So I'm going to pray, ask, give you a moment to get settled, clear off whatever you need to clear off, put down whatever you need to put down, and the deacons who are going to serve us this morning, would you make your way this way? Take just a moment here and ready ourselves for communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, the night before he went to the cross, he gathered his followers in a room, and he took, at one point in the meal, he took a piece of bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. You need to eat this and remember. And what he was telling them, they didn't understand, but what he was telling, they, telling them that they would come to understand was this. 
His brokenness the next day on the cross would mean our wholeness. His body was broken so that you and I could be made whole. I'm going to pray in just a moment. The elements will be passed to you. Um, If you'll hold on, grab one and just hold on to it, we'll eat as a symbol of unity. And if you're a follower of Jesus in here, you are welcome to participate. Uh, And if that doesn't describe you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, then man, you can just let that play go by. It's fine. No no judgment, no pressure here. Just let that play go by, okay? Let me pray. Uh, Jesus, I'm grateful that you endured the cross and despised its shame. You let yourself, perfect man, perfect son of God. You let yourself be broken by people, pierced in order to bring salvation to us. That's what we come to celebrate. We are the righteousness of God today because your body was broken. Help us to remember that as we do so. In Jesus' name.